Hi, and welcome to Off Leash. Your hosts of this episode are Allison Baker, she's our multimedia editor, and me, Vivian Fairbank, I'm the senior editor. In this episode, we're talking about math and journalism. <laughs> yes, we're talking about numeracy and the wonderful world of numbers. Why? Why would we do that? Why would we do that? <laughs> because we're scared of them. I am, at least. Generally, journalists are functional enumerates. I know that you're one, Allison. <laughs> I, I am one. I, I stopped taking math as soon as it was no longer obligatory in high school. And I am now kicking myself. Why, why are you doing that? Because I've realized how important math is in life. And also in journalism. Data journalism is ever-present and is very important uh, part of daily news, especially now in our digital age, as cliche as that is. And it's not only data journalism, which is kind of what we always associate with math. Um, it's kind of everything that ever has to do with understanding something that isn't spelled out for us. So when we're doing political reporting, when we're looking at polls, statistics, if we're looking at percentage changes, anything that has to do with um, looking at raw data and understanding it, even if we don't want to visualize it or, or do anything fancy with it, we have to understand um, like 10 times greater means a lot compared to 100 times greater. So, it, you know, it is something that we should all be working on. And really, how can I, ethically as a journalist, as an ethic, ethical, an ethical journalist, as an ethical journalist, how can I write about something that I don't necessarily understand? Um, we're kind of the best hosts to talk about this because there's Allison, who's way too humble and always says that she sucks at math when she's actually a genius. And then there's me, who's... Um, also way too humble and <laughs> says she sucks at math, but is actually a genius and is doing a minor in math. So I'm doing a lot of math that will be completely irrelevant to my journalism because I'm doing um, math theory. But there is kind of some overlap, which is interesting to point out, I guess, because not everyone can really uh, notice the overlap in such a concrete way. Um, for example, I was writing the newsletter yesterday and... I described something as having a 20 percentage point drop. And then someone asked, like, well, why don't you just say 20% drop? Um, because that'll cut down words and it sounds cleaner. But there's actually a mathematical difference between saying that something is dropped by 20 percentage points and dropping by 20%. So that's kind of something that I guess I never would have really known unless I had taken a bunch of courses or unless I had spoken to someone about it in, in been confident in my ability to say, like, I know that you're questioning this, but actually I'm right, as always. So. As always. <laughs> Remember how I said she was humble? She's not. Yeah, I'm not. She's not. <laughs> so we actually have three guests this week who are going to be talking with us about different ways that numeracy and math help um, in journalism. We're first talking with our professor, Tim Faulkner, um, because he has a lot to say about how important it is to be a numerate journalist and to really understand what numbers can mean when writing. We're also going to be talking to Peter Kautenbrauer. He's a columnist at the National Post. We're going to be talking to him about a specific feature that he wrote this year about maple syrup and all the math and understanding of numbers that he used to really get that story out. And our third guest is Siobhan Roberts. Uh, she wrote a book called The Genius of Play. She's a science journalist and a well-established author, and she writes about 
specifically science and math and mathematicians. Um, so she kind of has a very different experience of math journalism. So we'll be speaking with her about what it's like to use math, not only for the understanding of a subject and for journalism, but also as a subject in itself. So in studio with us is Tim Faulkner, our instructor at the RRJ and an instructor here at Ryerson. He's an advocate of numeracy in journalism. And last year for the RRJ, he wrote a blog post called The Dangerous Pride of the Enumerate Journalist. He's also just finished writing a book about science and singing that included some numeracy in science literacy. Hi, Tim. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm excellent. <laughs> good. In your blog post, you wrote, uh, most good stories need numbers. Can you kind of talk about that? Why? Why do all good stories, most good stories need numbers? I, I think, you know, anytime you're doing an interesting story, there's going to be a, there's going to be numbers involved or science involved. Um, I mean, unless you, if you're doing like celebrity journalism, I guess not. I mean, that's not even really journalism. Um, but you know, if you're doing, if you're a crime reporter, you have to understand crime stats. If you're a business reporter, obviously you have a lot of numbers to deal with. If if you're doing health or science, there's obviously lots of uh, science involved there. If you're, even if you're a hockey reporter, um, the big thing in hockey now is advanced stats, sometimes called fancy stats. Uh, and I just think that almost any good story, any layered story, will have numbers, will have science in it, uh, one or the other, or both. Um, if you're just doing a straight facts, ma'am, reporting, maybe you can get away with it. But the kind of journalism I'm interested in, in doing and reading ha involves a lot more subjects, a lot, uh, you know, it, it, it crosses borders. Uh, my book is science and culture and, and society and, and, and all these different things mixed together. Um, and if I was afraid of the science, uh, it wouldn't be nearly as good a book. Do you think that most journalists think that way about numbers? Or are you kind of ahead of the, ahead of the herd? Uh, so science is in every part of our, our life, which is why I say it's in every part of journalism. As for journalists specifically, I think the problem is a lot of people go, oh, I'm not good in math or science. I'm dropping out of that in high school and I'm going to do English and history and whatever, <clears throat> I'll go into journalism, you know. So they say things like, well, I suck at math. That's why I, I went into journalism. Um, but I, I think the problem is that we go, oh, yeah, that's fine. But it's not fine. We have to say to journalists, no, actually understanding numbers, understanding uh, science is essential to the job. And, and, and we can't just sort of like, you know, laugh or, or, you know, roll our eyes or whatever. Uh, and that starts in the schools, um, but it, it's also in the newsroom. You just can't let, you can't enable people with that kind of attitude. So what do you think the best way is to curb this trend and kind of encourage people to embrace math more? I mean, when I started freelancing, I wrote for a lot of business magazines because there was a lot of work and it paid well. Uh, I remember an editor telling me that there were people who got millions and billions mixed up, mm. you know, and they say, oh, this company's got, you know, a billion dollars in, in revenue. Oh, that's a great story. Mm. Turns out it's a million dollars in revenue. Well, that's not a great story. Um, and, uh, you know, business reporting is actually really good discipline because it's like any other story. You, you you're writing about people doing interesting things. 
but you have certain information, certain numbers you have to get and, and understand, obviously. How, how to stop it? I, I you know, I, I think we, we just, we don't enable the behavior. We just say, you know, we get judgy about people who say, I, I suck at math, that's why I, I'm in journalism, instead of just laughing it off. Um, do you want to talk a bit about writing your book and kind of how science, the understanding of science helped you? Well, there's a lot of science in my my book, a lot of brain science. Um, and if I were afraid of it, as I say, it would be a much diminished book if I had strayed away from that. Um, I'm not afraid of the science. I What scares me is the way academics write. And, you know, you, you get these papers and it's it's barely in English. It's not the numbers or the science <laughs> that's a problem. Um, but you know what? You have to fight your way through it. And, you know, I think a lot of reporters, well, they just read the abstract. But, you know, you should try to read the whole thing, at least read the conclusions and discussion. Uh, if you just read the abstract, you're, you're really missing a lot of the important parts of the, of the study. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Uh, that was what was fascinating to understand how the brain works. Um, you know, even like you know, I, I had some MRIs done, fMRIs done on my uh, on my head uh, for the book, and um, so I wrote about uh, the fMRI and how that has allowed us to understand the human brain so much uh, more in the last uh, decade or two. Um, sure, I could have left that out of the book, but I think it would have been a weaker book. But I'm inter- you know, the kind of writing I like to do. Uh, looks at everything. And, and, you know, just to say you're not interested in math is like saying, well, I'm not interested in culture or I'm not interested in society. You know, it, it's like they're all connected. And if you're going to write um, an interesting book, I think, or even an interesting magazine article, you're, you're going to bring in a lot of these elements. Uh, or, But I should say like, bringing in all these elements or many of these elements will make it a better article or book. Uh, as opposed to something one-dimensional. I, I, I had coffee with my editor, or not coffee, I had lunch with my editor last week. And she was saying, you know, that the books that are are too much in one category are in trouble because you, people can find the information on the Internet. But books that kind of sort of cross a few different categories, books like that have a better shot uh, in a very tough publishing market, uh, as opposed to books that are on one single subject, and people can, well, I can, I can get enough of that uh, on the internet. Um, so, would you have any advice to to someone who is a little bit uh, enumerate um, on how to make sense of of data? How what what to do to become numerate? <laughs> yeah, that's a, a tough one. I, I I would say the first thing is, don't be afraid of it. Um, you might have to spend some time with it and it might bring back bad memories of, of you know, s- some math class from high school uh, and some horrible math teacher. But, um, you know, the, the simple stuff and most of what we're talking about in, in journalism is fairly straightforward math. I mean, if you're looking at crime stats, um, you know, no one's asking you to do triple integration. Um but you you can't be afraid of the numbers, and that's the. I mean, <clears throat> I'm sure Vivian has a, a better suggestions than that. But <laughs> but I think it's just that it's. I think it's more of an attitude that that's the problem than anything else. 
My book is called Bad Singer, The Surprising Science of Tone Deafness and How We Hear Music. Um, it'll be out in May 2016 from House Financy, and it uh, will make a great Father's Day gift. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming, Tim. Thank you. It was a great pleasure to be here. <laughs> So we're in the studio right now with Peter Kutenbrauer, who's a columnist for the National Post, um, and he's going to be talking to us about a story that he wrote this year and how numeracy and math really helped him in writing it. Hi, Peter. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks for, for being coming. here. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to tell us a bit about um, what you do at the National Post? Oh, sure. Uh, recently started a new gig in the past year. I was a longtime Toronto columnist, and uh, these days I'm a feature writer in the Financial Post in the business pages. What does it mean to be a feature writer for the Financial Post and not the National Post? Well, I mean, I guess that the Financial Post is his uh, newspaper is over 100 years old and it's it's known as a kind of a record of what's going on in the investment community and uh, publicly traded companies and our readers are very investment focused. Um, I think they brought me on because they felt that it was a little bit too dry, a little bit too technical, mm -hmm. and maybe they needed uh, a little bit more long-form journalism, a little bit more uh, descriptive writing, storytelling in the pages of the Financial Post. So I have a, a quite a bit of freedom, actually, and, and uh, opportunity to do longer-form stories that involve a little bit more travel, a little bit more on-the-ground reporting, meeting people, and, uh, you know, sort of building narrative and building longer pieces on on subjects that are of interest to to investors and readers. So there still is an, an, a focus on, you know, big companies and what they're doing, but more about the the actual uh, gritty details of, of different industries. Perfect segue into uh, the feature uh, that you wrote this year, uh, Maple Syrup Re Rebellion. It was a long, a long feature, really interesting about the maple syrup industry in Quebec. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, how it came to be, what, um, what it was like there? Sure. I grew up on a farm in Quebec, and it was a ritual of spring for us to gather the buckets of maple sap from the maple trees, uh, bring them to the sugar shack. Boil, boil it down with, with a wood fire and make maple syrup. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it would be a great subject for a, uh, a business story because it is a big business and maple syrup from Canada goes all over the world. I didn't realize to what extent Quebec was really a, the dominant player in the global maple syrup industry, like most of the maple syrup on earth is made in Quebec. Wow. Um, and so I started doing some research and I just came across this remarkable uh, detail, which is that the government of, not the government of Quebec, but Quebec maple syrup producers themselves got together about 15 years ago and created this kind of cartel, which basically controls the uh, supply of maple syrup. And it allows them to set the price at a certain level and stabilize the price and it helps them to uh, have kind of uh, to build in an orderly way the maple syrup business. Un however, it's also had unintended consequences. So what kind of research did you have to do to kind of get to this story? Did you have to 
look at the price of maple syrup and kind of understand the math of weighing and pricing and like business and <laughs> making it in the market and all that? For sure. I mean, it's a big business story. And so um, what's interesting about this, I was saying that they stabilized the price. So what they got, the government of Quebec, or no, sorry, I should, I should rephrase that. It's not the government. It's the union of agricultural producers of Quebec that has basically gotten together and created this cartel, which essentially means that when you produce maple syrup, you can't just sell it to me. You have to go through them and they tell you how much you can make and they tell you what price they're going to give you for maple syrup and they tell you when they're going to pay you for maple syrup. So if you produce a bottle of maple syrup and give it to me, or, or you, you can't give it to me. I want it. I have to buy it from them. I pay them and they pay you. So yes, I did need to start to understand a lot about the math of this because it was the on the one hand, it was good because it meant that the price was stable. But on the other hand, what was frustrating these guys was that they were only getting 75% of their price, you know, originally. And then they were getting another 8% after six months and another 3% after that. And then the rest, they would have to wait. Plus there was a certain amount, which was, okay, this is a bizarre detail about maple syrup. And it's so archaic. For some reason, maple syrup is produced and sold and uh, inventoried by the pound, <laughs> which is the most unbelievably archaic and absurd system of measurement because <laughs> pounds, uh, even if, if we use them, which we don't anymore, are, are should, should is something you think of for, you know, a pound of sugar <laughs> or a pound of butter. Why a pound of something that's liquid? It's absurd. <laughs> so in fact, when you try to understand, because they were talking about pounds, they were also talking about gallons, and they were also talking about liters and hectoliters. So mm -hmm. it's tremendously bewildering and, and confusing, all of these different numbering systems that they have to, to, to keep track of this product. So how did you wrap your head around all that, that data and all those numbers? It's a good question. I mean, I would start by saying that as my own background is that when I joined the Financial Post as a requirement of employment, I had to take the Canadian Securities course, okay. which is offered by, uh, which is run through the investment dealers uh, in, on Bay Street, you know, and, uh, and that. So I have a little bit of a background, a little bit of journalistic or financial numeracy, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. That said, um, there were a bunch of reports that had been written uh, over the years about the maple syrup industry. So I had read those reports in order to understand that. Um, they read, for example, Statistics Canada keeps statistics on maple syrup production. Mm -hmm. um, there were different accounts. I talked to a lot of people on the phone even before I went to Quebec so that I understood what it was that we were talking about. You know, and so I guess that the issue was to, and I'd also made a little drawing, I think I, uh, in my notepad, just to visualize for myself, where does a barrel of maple syrup, like once it's made, how much goes to which people and, and just to sort of keep the math straight in my head. Mm. Did you have, do you find that there was a time when you had to say, okay, I have so many numbers, so much data, I'm going to sit down, take out a piece of paper and kind of do these calculations and try to 
digest everything so that you could write it in like a simple way exactly and and for me the way it helped for me it was almost like if you ever see in usa today the way they do their graphs of like the price of gas at the pump and they'll always have a little drawing of a little gas pump and show little, little gradations on it to explain things mm-hmm. and so i my my own visualization that helped me was to just draw a little cartoony picture of a barrel with like little gradations on it and write the numbers down so that I was able in my own head and to quickly show it to people that I was trying to explain the story to even as I was reporting it so that they could grasp the uh, the way this uh, the way these numbers work. The National Post being a very sober, sober and somber newspaper doesn't go <laughs> in for these kinds of visualizations, even though I think it, it often helps readers to understand what the heck is going on. Because mm-hmm. that is definitely a challenge, right? Is, is that even once you've been able to kind of tackle a story that does include all of these numbers and these statistics, you need to be able to relay it to your readers um, who kind of have less of a responsibility to understand everything by themselves, right? But also relay it to the people you're going to interview too to give them context, right? Sure, I guess you could say that. But I mean, I think that in fairness, the important thing is that You know, sometimes I think that even taking the Canadian securities course or what have you, like the thing is, there are other journalists at the the Financial Post whose job is to write very stat heavy stories. And I have to be able to go one step further. So what that means is that I have to be able to understand the math, but then be very judicious about how much of it I actually end up putting in my story. You know, the most important number in the entire story, which didn't actually have to do with the uh, the percentages or the amounts of maple syrup itself, but more to do with market share. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. So Quebec produced 10 years ago something like 80% of the world's maple syrup. Today, they make more maple syrup than they did 10 years ago. But the key number is market share. So Quebec's percentage of the world production of maple syrup has decreased. So that's a little bit of a complicated concept to understand. But basically, yeah, they have produced more maple syrup than they did in the past. But so does everyone else. But everyone else is producing even more. Mm. So it's, yeah, they're, they're saying, they for example, they'll say to you, well, what are you talking about? We've increased our production by 20% over 10 years ago. Yes, but your market share is down because... The Americans and Vermont, or, you know, and, and the New Brunswick and Ontario have increased their production at a greater rate than you have. Hmm. Um, can you actually kind of talk about the security test a little bit? What I've, I've never even heard of it. What, what is that? The Canadian Securities Institute uh, regulates the securities profession. So that means that if you... This course is not for journalists. It's actually for people who want to work on Bay Street. So if you want to work as a stockbroker, you want to work as a portfolio manager, you want to work managing a mutual fund, or you want to work selling mutual funds or selling stocks on Bay Street, you have to take a series of courses to prove your your financial literacy. And the most basic one, the first course, is the Canadian Securities course, which basically teaches you about stocks and bonds and interest rates and short sellers and, you know, um, just the, the sort of nuts and bolts of how the stock market works. And uh, you have to learn some formulas and you have to, uh, you know, 
learn about uh, different regulatory agencies and all that kind of stuff. It's been a while since I took it, so I'm not sure I would pass it if I wrote it today. But uh, it's just it's just the first like they don't require like if you wanted to continue down that road and become uh, you know somebody working in, on Bay Street, you you would have to take a number of other courses. So it was just the most uh, the most uh, introductory I guess course. Um, so you had to do that before you started writing for the Financial Post. You said, do you think that is something that like a course similar or the same course should be taken by? most journalists going into any newspaper that might deal, well, I guess almost every newspaper deals with numbers, um, just to kind of have that basic literacy or numeracy uh, in numbers? I'd be kind of afraid to be assaulted by journalists if this ever got out that I was advocating (laughs) that because it's not very fun. It's a lot of work. I had to write a big essay. I wrote an essay about Sears, actually, Sears Canada and studying their uh, financial performance over the years and how they were doing. I mean, I would say that it's certainly good. I'll tell you why, you know. It's not so much that you're ever going to work on Bay Street, and it's not so much that you're even going to be able to offer financial advice or even um, uh, write really detailed uh, stories that offer your readers financial advice. I think it's more that if you walk into a room of guys in pinstripe suits who are all Bay Street stockbrokers, you're not as intimidated of them. You can say, yeah, I know a little bit of your language. You know, you're you're talking to me about shorting that stock. That doesn't intimidate me that you're talking about that. I know what that means, you know, or whatever. So I guess it's just, yeah, it helps to just uh, be able to read the business pages without like uh, uh, without, although even today, I will say some of the stories in the Financial Post, I don't understand. <laughs> so, but it, it helps to be able to at least grasp the basics for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what about if I want to not be a business journalist at all, but I want to be an arts reporter? Um, is there still any use in, in understanding math and in business and finance and all of that stuff? Well, I think I would say absolutely because the art market, I mean, I suppose there are art, there are probably magazines about the business of art. You know, it's a massive sector with huge mm-hmm. amounts of investment going on and, and lots of money changing hands. So I, do, I don't suppose you should uh, write about art unless you understand the finances of the art market. Yeah, and that would pretty much apply to everything, I guess, because it's going to be business. and Sure. I mean, look at sports, for example. I mean, here's an interesting detail. You probably know that uh, NHL players, we have seven NHL teams in Canada. Well, all of those hockey players are played in U.S. dollars. Mm. So right away, think about what's happened with the price falling, the collapse of the oil price in the past year. The loonie, which was tied to the price of oil, has collapsed. So now all of a sudden, if you're the Montreal Canadiens, you're paying all of your players right. Right. in U.S. dollars, but the people who are coming to see a Montreal game are paying you in Canadian dollars. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a dramatic problem for uh, owners of sports teams. So obviously there's all kinds of math in the, in the world of sports. What, do you have final words of wisdom? All, inf- you know, information is power. Thank you so much. You're Thank welcome. you so much. <laughs> 
We're now going to be speaking with Siobhan Roberts. As we mentioned before, she's a science journalist and an author. She writes about science and math and mathematicians. A review of her book about Donald Coxeter, a famous geometrist, said that Siobhan Roberts has achieved something extraordinary in this book. Hello friends, it's Stephanie here. I'm the production editor of the ROJ and I've got Siobhan Roberts on the phone. Hi Siobhan, how are you doing? Good, thanks. That's good. So you are the author of three books, most recently Genius at Play, and they're all about science and numeracy. Can you tell me a little bit about how that became your niche? Well, I sort of, you know, took a wrong turn somewhere, I guess, because, you know, I don't have any formal training in mathematics. There was one course on mathematics and poetry, which is sort of exploring you know, artistic elements of, of math and, and poetry. Yeah, no, I don't have any, any formal training at all, and I'm kind of learning as I go. Do you ever read any journalism that upsets you for the way it handles numbers? I wouldn't say for the way it handles numbers. I mean, it has been dismayed with the way mathematicians and scientists sometimes are portrayed. You know, my book was reviewed. There was one review that sort of portrayed Conway as a, a lonely genius operating on the razor's edge of madness and talking gibberish. You know, he's the most sociable mathematician ever. Um, and he is known as uh, a great explainer and storyteller. Just like any other subject, you just have to um, be keenly observant and, and pick out the, the salient details. So I think that's where where I find the, the sort of math phobia. I mean, certainly numeracy is a challenge for reporters and for myself as well. You know? Yeah, I read math phobia can kind of rub off on your kids. Some parents who think they're bad at math end up making their children afraid of it. Yes, it, it can be contagious, definitely. And it's a funny thing, like even mathematicians uh, will acknowledge that math is hard. Math is not easy for anybody, even a world-class mathematician. Is a, and a colleague of, of the fellow I was writing about, um, this other mathematician, Peter Starnack, at Princeton, he remarked that the steady state of a mathematician's life is the feeling of being blocked. Like you're always frustrated, you're trying to Take apart this problem and solve it. Um, and so that's just, that's the nature of the, the subject. If you, if you want to explore that realm, you have to embrace it. So, what's your process? How do you compute pure math into book length journalistic endeavors that win awards for expanding the public's view of mathematics? I just take the traditional journalistic approach, really. Like, I find an interesting character, really rely on my sources and, and writing biographies. You know, I couldn't write a biography about any mathematician. I've chosen them carefully and Conway is a great uh, my latest subject is a you know, this sort of iconoclastic um grandstander. He's a very big personality and he's a storyteller effectively as a mathematician, so I mean he was great material. You know, I ask questions and then I go back and transcribe and I ask more very, very simple, stupid questions, um, and really be shameless about it. Uh, and, you know, I was very lucky with, with Conway in particular that he was extremely generous in answering those questions and setting the time and helping me uh, get up to speed. So, it's really, you know, the, the usual skills that an economist maybe employs, um, and it might, it might be more time-consuming depending on your uh, other areas of knowledge. It is frustrating, and I do sometimes wonder how I manage to 
end up in this niche when it's not um, what I was formally trained in. At the end of the day, you know, you might don't need to necessarily write a, a hard hitting mathematical story, but there might be a nice little gem of the detail in there. You know, so I think there's lots of material kind of around the field of mathematics without getting into the, the hardcore um, technical details um, that you know, any any journalist could tackle um, if you are sort of curious and open minded. I do I do get sort of addicted to the details though. Um, I found with Conway, you know, I was I was trying to write that book for a, a general readership. Um, but I would have to understand the various things he was passionate about to a level of like beyond um, that which I was going to write about it. Uh, so I, I, I do, um, you know, in trying to figure it out, I do get really into the, the details. And I think there is, there is a similarity between mathematics and writing in that aspect because uh, writing is, is, I feel like it's, you know, putting a puzzle together. You're sort of gathering material, figuring out how to structure it into a story, and it, it does really feel like a puzzle and then when it all comes together um, it is very satisfying to see that. I think most most journalists being intrinsically inherently uh, curious people I think they would be surprised that they'd find something of interest there so that's been off leash for this week it's actually the last podcast before the holidays. So that's it for 2015. 2015. Take it while you can. But exciting news for the new year is that in 2016, we're going to be making our iTunes premiere. So we will be downloadable on iTunes finally. Uh, so you can listen to us anywhere. At from any your time. iPhone, from your iPad, from your Android. A variety of products. Yes. Um, <laughs> So make sure to keep up with us in the new year, RJ Offleash, and we'll speak to you in 2016. Happy holidays. Bye.